Thanks. Although Australia was still part of the British Empire, World War I saw it consolidating a separate identity as a nation. The rhetoric surrounding this paradigmatic shift was highly gendered. At the beginning of the war, England was often idealised as the mother country, with many women poets initially expressing patriotic and filial devotion. The title poem of Zora Cross's A Song of Mother Love and Other Verses, from 1916, for instance, was strongly jingoistic. We love as one, we fight as one, we have one mother, one alone, England. The victories of suffrage in Australia impacted greatly on the scope of women to not only comment upon but also intervene in Australia's involvement in war. Given the recent right to vote, women were instrumental in public debate, particularly around the issue of conscription. Although poetry was typically viewed as a personal, privileged and often male vehicle of expression, James Devaney, for instance, dismissing women poets as frills for their hysterical flag flapping, a number of women published poetry in the pages of socialist or feminist newspapers and periodicals, or alternatively took it to the streets. The women's no conscription demonstration saw around 10,000 women march in Melbourne from the Guildhall in Swanston Street to the Yarra Bank, where the crowd reached around 50,000. Mary Fullerton, a key figure of the Women's Political Association, read her poem, The Wooer, at the second anti-conscription demonstration. In it, she represents Australia as a young maiden being courted by a false suitor. Trust no promise he can make them, promises of gentle rule. He can make them, he can break them, like all monsters of his school. Make no marriage, glorious maiden, free today from sea to sea. There would keep thy children laden with the irons of tyranny, as you did a year ago, young Australia, answer no. Fullerton's poem was unusual. More often women poets either protested or supported the war through the lens of motherhood. In 1917, Mary Gilmore drew direct parallels between the contribution of the mother and the contribution of the soldier towards their country. Both, she believes, should be recognised and compensated by the government. More women have died of shock, of injuries received in that trench of death, the childbed, than soldiers killed in battle. For war happens only at intervals. The other goes on year by year since ever the world began. Her 1918 collection, The Passionate Heart, featured many poems about the war, with the title poem, These Following Men, being from the perspective of women left to mourn for their sons. For Gilmore, a son was a corporeal extension of his mother. In Gallipoli, she writes that he was I, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, but there is no tangible possession or claim of him. Since he was born, he never was mine, only the dream is our own. Rather, he is of the wider world. Where the world called him, there he went, when the wall called him, there he bent. Now he is dead. As a mother, she gives her own to his plenty. The lack of agency is reinforced by aligning the mother with the soldier's weaponry in that she is only made useful or animate by her relationship to her son. I am the ball the marksman sent, missing the end and falling spent. I am the arrow sighted fair. That failed and finds not anywhere. He who was I is dead. 
Joy Demusi notes that women sending their sons to war became the quintessential emblem of feminine sacrifice in the popular press. She adds, women's stature increased with the number of sons they had serving at the front. She recalls the Argus publishing a series on mothers of men, arguing that the sacrifices made by some women in sending their sons to serve their empire are so notable that their contribution should be known to readers of the paper. The paper even published a photograph of mothers who had sent three or more sons to the front and a brief description of the boys' military activities. A poetic parallel is Gilmore's The Woman of Five Fields. Written for Anzac Day, the central figure is a mother who looks out on the fields, signifying the country as a whole, for which she has given her five sons. A poem that Gilmore was persuaded to remove from the passionate heart, although it would be published in The Worker, was The Mother. He died a hero's death, they said, when they came to tell me my boy was dead, but out in the street a dead dog lies, flies in his mouth, ants in his eyes. Here the human is read off the animal. The death of the animal represents more accurately the death of the boy as being something far from heroic. The expense of war is the devaluing of life, the abandoned body inadequately mourned. The minimalism of the poem, with its blank description, adds to the horror. Devoid of emotion, it suggests more fully the deadened, almost abject response of the mother. As Joan Montgomery Biles points out, in women's experience of World War I, suffragists, pacifists and poets, a persistent theme surrounding the trope of motherhood in women's wartime writing is that all their nurturing had only produced young men to be killed. Whereas The Woman of Five Fields presents motherhood through a pro-war ideology, viewing the mother's sacrifice as hard but necessary, poems like The Mother foreground the senselessness of war. The hero's death is undercut as unverifiable and quite possibly a fiction by the line they said. Poems like Nina Murdoch's Socks portray the frustration of women on the home front their agency lifted, limited to domestic tasks like knitting socks. And it would be paralleled by responses uh, by women in the visual arts, such as Grace Cossington Smith's The Sock Knitter. Too plain pearl too, it's little else a woman can do, but bear sons and watch them grow till marching out of her life they go. Knit five pearl one, I doubt if ever a mother's son in war's cause hacked and cleft knows half the hurt of the woman that's left. Slip one, pearl eight, there's nothing left to hope and wait. And the seven tasks of Hercules would count as little compared with these. Turn, slip, then the heel, out of sorrow comes, happily will. But fair times are far away, and there's many weep for their men today. Such testing, she suggests, overwhelms even the heroics of Hercules. While Murdoch's poem foregrounds the courage required of women, it leaves them in a position of passivity and powerlessness. Fullerton viewed such acts as, of, as knitting as a generative counterpoint to masculine destruction and strife. While men are tearing down with the hell-rammed gun, woman is knitting, knitting all she has ever done. Weaving while men dest destroy with sword and pen, women are knitting, knitting, knitting the shapes of men. Silent with patient pain in the day and night, weaving new limbs and hearts for the long sunlight. 
Women the makers of men, the vessel of life. Oh, but the men are gods, makers of strife. Uh, Significantly, it places the woman poet, though, in an ambivalent position, for she's more aligned with the men who destroy with sword and pen than with knitters. Many women poets uh, also turn to nature for signs of regeneration. In a response to a newspaper report that a nest of young birds had hatched in one of the trenches in Gallipoli, Fullerton wrote, fledgling. O little bird, they are not hypocrites, those gentle-fingered men who lift your darlings from the nest and place them there again. O little bird, it makes them think of home, of little birds beloved, their own, of their dear mate that kissed and clung, then stood alone. O little bird, while they, because of race, must strive to kill the loving mates of foreign mother woman for the pride and dignity of the states. O little bird, chirp love and flaunt your happiness. So touch each, each heart, unman each arm, but dim their eyes, so they forswear their part. Uh, it's interesting that Fullerton suggests an alternative version of masculinity here, one that's not naturally aggressive, but gentle and nurturing. She also emphasises the unity between the soldier and his enemy, this time in sharing a mother woman back home. In The Saturn of the Bee, Mary Gilmore uses nature and shifts attention from the broad canvas of battle with its thundering hoofs and hailspurts of gunfire to the particular, in this case, the quiet flash of a bee. The bee's activity contrasts with the stasis of the dead who lie thick as fallen leaves from the shattered tree. However, among the shattered bodies grows the tranquil flower, a symbol of the season that continues on regardless. For Gilmore, the flower and the bee symbolise the continuing cycle of fertility and new life, providing a strong contrast with the barrenness of war. The landscape proffers a silent narrative. Stark tree and stark dead tell of what is done. Mother Nature, Gilmore suggests, continues to labour with life. It offers a narrative which she, as woman poet, can turn the shuttle over in order to reveal its fabric. She can linguistically recreate the texture of the satin of the bee and foreground the interconnectedness of nature and its industry. In its alignment with a natural cycle towards regeneration, motherhood could be more powerful than war. In the alternative, war was sometimes associated with overheated male desire and the death drive. Marie Pitt presents war as a monstrous Jezebel in her 1918 poem, Confitior. Lo, we have sinned, and this is just an excerpt, we have sinned in the fevered urge that broke like a red surge on pain-pale coasts of life. But less was our sin withal as vessels and slaves mazed in the blind blind thrall of the red harlot war. A lean jade war leaves reason abandoned like a child in the dirt. The babe is ripped from its mother's breast while sisters are bought and sold on the street. Pitt does not separate herself or women from the hold of war, using the pronoun we to extend guilt to all. And Pitt, as with many poets, uh, relies on a Christian framework of morality to condemn the war. While the poetic speaker of most poetry by women was female, 
Gilmore assumed the perspective of the soldier in the corn. Like Pitt's confiteor, the poem is a call to God. Pity me there, Lord Christ, in the dark. I was a man, he was a mark. I crept like a beast till I saw his face. Her poem tracks two transformations, the enemy familiar mark to a, woman, to a man some woman had loved and the lyric speaker who goes from a man to a stalking beast. It dramatises war's dehumanising effect. Having initially voiced concern at the rubbish heap of war, Zora Cross became more supportive of the war effort after her brother Victor decided to enlist. Yet this changed again when her younger brother, youngest brother Jack died, leading to her well-known long poem, Allergy on an Australian Schoolboy. Man that is born of woman may not die through the dear death of one who lived and breathed beneath our happy sky under our warm, sweet sun. The resurrection and light are here, O world redeemed of pain. The son of woman through the battle of fear comes through the halls of fear comes back to live again. As this first stanza reveals, Cross makes an analogy with Christ's own sacrifice. However, in foregrounding that this son is born of woman rather than of God, she emphasises both the humanity of the soldier boy and the significant role of mothers in bearing such heroic sons. The sacrifice is not divine but a human one and as such will be writ in collective memory. As this paper demonstrates, many women poets relied on dominant religious or colonial discourses, even as they critiqued militarism. Their responses foregrounded the perspective of women, whether limited in agency or not, or the importance of the feminine. World War I marked Australia's metamorphosis, international independence, but also its emergence as a maternal force in its own right. By 1920, Nettie Palmer would write, Australia is no longer a group of more or less important colonies hanging loosely together with the Bermudas and Fiji on the ample bosom of Britannia. Rather, she is creating her own line of man. Thank you. <laughs>